world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions, gamers dominate the tabletop, and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies, and fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. So hello and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. Yay. How are you doing today, Don? I'm here. That's a start. <laughs> so today, we're going to be talking about the Satanic Panic. Don, are you familiar with the Satanic Panic? Yes, I am. This was the major, major character-building event of my life. Awesome. Well, or maybe not so awesome. <laughs> Before we start, I thought I'd uh, kind of set the scene for our audience, just because I know that some people probably haven't actually heard of the Satanic Panic. They probably think I'm talking about a heavy metal band right now. But <laughs> um, the, basically, the short version, for those who are not familiar with it, is that the Satanic Panic was a panic that swept America in the 1980s and to the 1990s when many people believe that there were satanic groups basically lurking around almost every corner. They believe that Satanists were hiding everywhere and were corrupting our children and doing horrible, horrible things. And so, audience, please sit back, relax for a moment, and I'm going to do my best to uh, tell you about the satanic panic before we start. Sadly enough, the roots for the satanic panic that swept America in the 1980s actually come from Canada. Canadians are to blame, I'm afraid, Don. <laughs> Aren't we always? In 1980, a book called Michelle Remembers was published by psychiatrist Lawrence Pasteur and his patient and later wife, Michelle, Michelle Smith. In it, Pasteur and Smith documented the results of over 600 hours of repressed memories Pasteur claimed to have recovered through hypnotherapy. So you know they got to be good. <laughs> These memories blame Smith's depression and other issues on ritual sexual abuse that Smith claims to have been performed on her when she was five by her mother and the satanic cult working with her mother in Victoria, British Columbia. Although no evidence has ever been found to substantiate Padzer's claims, or Smith's claims, the publication of the book and the media storm that followed led the public to believe that Satanists were holding secret rituals in every nook and cranny and harboring children and teens. This was further popularized in 1983 by the McMartin Preschool Incident, where it was claimed that 340 children attending McMartin Preschool in Manhattan Beach, California, had been abused, not just sexually, but had taken part in satanic rituals that included seeing witches fly, traveling in a hot air balloon, being taken through underground tunnels, and, I'm not making this up, claims that Chuck Norris was one of the abusers. Most of this was the result of interviews conducted by a woman named Key McFarlane and her staff, according to a 2006 article by Nadja Schrieber on the subject. And McFarlane and her staff made use of highly suggestive interviewing techniques and invited children to pretend or speculate about supposed events. Dr. Michael Maloney, a British clinical psychologist and professor of psychiatry, was highly critical of the interviewing techniques used, referring to them as improper, coercive, directive, problematic, adult-directed in a way that forced the children to follow a rigid script, and that many of the kids' statements in the interviews were generated actually by the examiner. 
During the actual trials, the aforementioned Lawrence Pazder and Michelle Smith actually met with the children and their families and discussed the satanic ritual aspects with the families, and were believed by the initial prosecutor, Glenn Stevens, to have influenced the children's testimony. So you can tell that their testimony was high quality and completely unbiased. <laughs> In the end, the trial lasted seven years and cost $15 million, making it the longest and most expensive criminal case in the history of the United States legal system until that time, and ultimately resulted in no convictions. But what it did do, thanks to the unquestioning media's reporting of the children's accounts, was further fan the flames of the satanic panic that gripped America. Into this environment came the story of James Egbert Dallas III, a depressed young man who in 1979 tried to commit suicide in the tunnels beneath Michigan State University, and after failing, hid at a friend's house for 30 days while a major search for him was being carried out. His parents hired a private investigator, William Deere, to seek out their son. Deere knew nothing about Dungeons and Dragons at that time, but speculated to the press that Egbert had gotten lost in the steam tunnels during a live-action version of the game, which he casually heard of. The press ran with this, and suddenly the claim that the popular game D&D had driven a young man to suicide was national news. This was further pushed by a fictionalized accounting of the Dallas case by author Rona Jaffe called Mazes and Monsters. Later, a TV movie of the week starring Tom Hanks, published in 1981. Dallas himself successfully committed suicide, unfortunately, in 1980. In 1982, a woman named Patricia Pulling, whose son had committed suicide and was an avid D&D player at one point, created BADD, Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons, her one-woman advocacy group fighting the evil of Dungeons and Dragons, despite there being no provable connection between D&D and her son's death. In fact, in 1987, author Michael Stackpole helped to prove that people who play RPGs like D&D are actually less likely to commit suicide than the national average. This further pushed the D&D Satanism connection, which would later be directly stated by evangelist Jack Chick in his 1984 comic Dark Dungeons, about a young gamer who is lured into Satanism by her evil, devil-worshipping dungeon master priestess. And boy, is that a mouthful to say. Yes, it is. It was a mouthful there were, to read, too. There were other attempts to connect role-playing and Satanism, but none ever really stuck in the public consciousness the same way, however. So there you go. There's a little bit of a background. So the truth is, the Satanic Panic, at least the part that's connected with D&D and pretty much the whole Satanic Panic, was basically the result of was basically the result of hypnotherapy, bad reporting, sensationalism, and I've also read that it was connected with um, daytime talk shows like Oprah and Phil Donahue yeah, was, was around true. at that time, and the other groups that basically did their absolute best to fan the flames because it got them ratings. Yeah. There's some other bizarre stuff. I actually recommend people read up on it because it's a pretty interesting series of events that happened. But the end result is is that no one ever actually proved that there was real Satanism in D&D or in the fact that there was real Satanism doing anything evil at all, period, ever, that I could find no, anyway. They, no, there, there, there wasn't. Um, you, you've got the, the, the facts down, but I think if you really mm -hmm. want to see the, the origin of this, mm -hmm. it starts in the 60s. Interesting. Okay, why? Please explain. Okay, and this is one of them reasons why... For anybody who's a patron of the nerdly arts, you should kind of pay attention to the real world as well, because it all ties in and it'll come back and bite you in the ass one day. 
uh, like this. Like many things. Yeah. If you remember the 60s, uh, you had kind of a more, a more openness in North America. Society was starting to consider people in groups that had been marginalized for a while. Um, Vietnam scared the hell out of people, so it made them not trust the government explicitly like they used to. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people from all groups and all social levels weren't terribly happy about the war. And it created right. this, this it be the beginnings of an acceptance of counterculture, that it was okay, okay. It was okay to speak out against the norm. It was okay to say that maybe um, human dignity and human life had more value than political ideas. Mm-hmm. And everybody knows this, like, you know, the, the, the extreme, the hippies and all that. When, when you got to the 70s, you had fights. You had some actual headway made for different groups, uh, notably uh, women's rights, uh, minority mm-hmm. rights, especially for, for black people, and mm-hmm. gay rights. And, Definitely. Yep. And in the early 70s, because these groups were no longer seen as, as marginal. They were seen as, well, they're just like everybody else. Right. There was a lot of, um, a lot of headway made, a lot of advancement. Mm-hmm. There was also a lot of backlash because uh, human beings, we run on inertia. We don't really like change. Mm-hmm. And at the time, you had a lot of social changes. And a lot of people, especially more established people, were not terribly happy about that. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest things that got people's panties in a twist was Roe versus Wade. Right. The abortion case. Yeah. The one that made abortion legal in the States. Yes. That mobilized great many evangelical Christian groups mm-hmm. because they saw that this was like the most heinous thing ever. And you'll, you, you see it today. People are still touchy about this today, that it's the worst disaster that happened to the human race. And thousands of like innocent humans were killed by abortion and all this. Right. What ended up happening is that as, as they mobilized, you had all of these other groups on both sides start to collapse. Um, abortion quickly became tied in with uh, women's rights. So if you were against one, you ended up being against both. Right. Even though they were actually, they're related issues, but they're different. Um, when yes, the religious types started protesting the, the abortion and that, uh, that's when you started getting a backlash against the gay rights. Because mm-hmm. a lot of evangelicals think that that's the work of the devil as well. And then that got tied in. And you started to have this this grassroots religious movement based against all of the different progressive movements of the, of the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Uh, where the culmination of that came was uh, when Jerry Falwell established the moral majority, mm-hmm. which was basically all of like the hardcore right-wing religious groups amalgamating together. Like Voltron. Yeah, basically a giant super semi-fascist Voltron Sent to ruin, awesome. sent to ruin your fun. God hates fun. So and Jesus will form the head. That's right. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> but I, I pictured it anyway. I'm just as bad. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the effect you had once the moral majority was in place. What ended up happening was, uh, for the 1979-1980 election, uh, Reagan courted. The, the, the moral majority, the religious right heavily. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of people think it was, that's what pushed it over the top to get him in. Right. That it was, he, he got the, 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 the religious right on his side, which if you follow mm-hmm. American politics, 
that's what the GOP still favorably tries to do today. Right. And then he got a lot of votes because it was it was the idea of the good old-fashioned America, not this weird America where all these people that just yesterday we could hate all of a sudden have rights and such. Mm-hmm. And that's that was the the attitude that was and and again if you follow american politics you still see that on the right this make america great again i want my country back hearkening to this old tiny time that didn't really exist but mm-hmm. the image of which was painted in the 80s because of that it was easy that when you had groups like bad and you mm-hmm. had the uh, james dallas egbert the third case that when people would start saying oh, it's the work of the devil that they'd get press Mm-hmm. Like you think the idea that Satan himself has written this game that will turn children into satanic mass murderers. It mm-hmm. sounds crazy, but you had the mindset in place that mm-hmm. again, re- the religious right was, was, was on the rise. And this was something that was easy to adapt into that. And it was something that was like the generally accepted worldview of the day. Right. And then, like you say, the media outlets jumped on board with this. Okay, so Reagan has created his moral majority, or sorry, Falwell created the moral majority. Yep. And uh, Reagan and the Republicans have ridden into power based on it. Okay, so what happens next? Uh, what happens next is, is the media jumps on board. And that was where you would get, and it was probably just a quirk that the D&D thing came up in these reports. But right. that's what everybody latched on to. Well, like I said, the detective hired to find um, Mr. The Third there. He really, he just kind of heard of this D&D game that kids were playing maybe live action stuff of. He just made an offhand reference to it. And yeah. the media just totally ran with it. Yeah, it's the same thing if you look at um, um, the uh, when Patricia Pulling's son when he mm-hmm. killed himself, there was, again, there was no connection other than he played this game. Right. The only connection that I could actually find when I was doing research truly to D&D and uh, crime is there was a young man whose name is escaping me now. But basically, he and two members of his gaming group were actually convicted of, I think, killing his father and almost killing his mother. Or I might have the death backwards. But anyway, trying to kill his parents. Mm-hmm. and three of them went to prison. Now, whether whether the game actually had any influence on that, who knows? Yeah. Probably, of course, obviously not. But they at least socialized while playing this evil satanic game, Dungeons & Dragons. Right. So that's the only reference I could find to D&D actually being really connected with a crime. I'm right. sure there might be a few other tangential references, but not many. Well, there are, and... and... You run into the problem that I'm sure when all of these people were doing these horrible things, they were wearing pants. Well, how come we don't blame pants? Oh my I'm God, sure they all God. spoke English. How come? That's the secret. Everybody, lose your pants now. It's the only way. Exactly. The pants. Pants are the work of the devil. I'm thinking of Homer Simpson. You hate pants too, right? Yep. That's pretty much it. I mean, I'm sure there were many things they were doing, but D&D, of course, was a popular game that the older generation didn't understand. Well, you're half- and so, yeah. Well, you're half right, though. Okay. Well, because the game had it in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, and I remember this because I started playing around 77, 78. 
and it was di- it could be difficult to find. That's one of the reasons it became a great scapegoat because it was the up and coming thing. Mm-hmm. And invariably, parents are always looking for a reason to hate the up and coming thing because one, it's something the kids are going to want them to spend their money on, and two, True. it's a reminder that as a grown up, you're now becoming obsolete. Yeah, the current generation focus is no longer on you. You're fading off into the past, and the new generation has replaced you. Yep. So, and and it's it's always the same lines every generation. Oh, it is. I mean, I've seen references, for example, that over 100 years ago, when these things called paperback novels were all the rage, (laughs) there was actually a moral outrage, a moral panic over paperback novels. They thought that these paperback novels, you know, like romance and other genres that you might, detective stories and other things like that, were absolutely corrupting young minds. (laughs) You can also find references to magazines corrupting young minds at certain point, radio... Uh, comic books, of course, yeah. the infamous comic book events of the 1950s. And pretty much every generation has the technology or game or whatever that's corrupting young minds and is going to destroy society if something's not done about it. Yeah, there was once upon a time it was believed that writing was going to like turn the whole human race stupid because the fact that we can record things means we don't have to memorize them or know anything. Actually, that was Socrates. Socrates actually wrote that uh, writing would make everyone forgetful and stupid. Yeah, there's a certain irony there. <laughs> yes, there is, considering his writings are still around today. Yep. <laughs> and in fact, he was a famous playwright and, oh, never mind. But the thing is, yeah, he actually, according to his own writings, he said, no, writing will make everyone forgetful and stupid. <laughs> so I had to say for myself... I kind of skipped the whole satanic panic. Like, I wasn't an avid gamer, not in the role-playing game sense, until probably around the mid to late 80s. So as an end result, I kind of skipped most of it. Right. I mean, I was aware of the Satanism and heavy metal connection, of course. Mm-hmm. And um, I still remember to this day sitting on my grandparents' floor in, sometime in the 70s. And my grandparents and my aunt, my elderly aunt, my great aunt, were talking about that evil group Kiss <laughs> and that Ozzy Osbourne guy who obviously worshipped the devil because he, you know, bit off bats' heads on stage and things like that. <laughs> you know, when it was on on TV, I did actually see Mazes of Monsters back in the day. I mean, it ran from time to time, especially in reruns, I think I saw it. Yeah. So I was aware of the whole D&D and Satanism and gaming and Satanism connection, supposed connection, of course. Right. But I was never really affected by it. Oh, okay. But, but I think you were, weren't you? Yeah, because that was, um, like I say, I'd been playing a couple of years before it hit. Mm-hmm. And I remember when all of these people started saying, it's weird, it's evil. Because to this day, this is why I do not like Geraldo Rivera. Because at the time, he was on a, uh, I believe he was with Entertainment Tonight. And he did a two-part right. expose of the secret of what goes on in a Dungeons & Dragons game. And it made Mazes and Monsters look well-adjusted, eh? Right. Because we watched it. Me and my friends were like, we don't wear robes. I don't remember chanting or anything. What the hell's wrong with this guy? Apparently, you guys were doing it wrong. Yeah, I guess. Well, if you've read the uh, Dark Dungeons pamphlet, we must have, because we didn't have a super hot Elvira woman as our game master. Cause, yeah, because that you were definitely doing it wrong. Yeah, that was really common back in the early days of gaming. I don't know if the audience realizes that or not. 
Yeah, exactly. These mysterious hot women would show up and offer to, you know, dungeon master for yep. you. It was the most amazing thing ever. That was the only way you could learn how to play because, like, holy smokes, was the uh, dungeon master's guide poorly organized. But <laughs> Yes, it was. <laughs> um, unless that hot sorceress showed up and taught you how, you never would have figured that thing out. That's right, yeah. But anyway, and we're only being half sarcastic. <laughs> yeah, anybody who's played AD and D realizes that and is laughing right now. They're also probably yeah. forty, so that's okay. Yeah, let's just say it really, really needed a good index. Yeah. <laughs> actually, if I recall right, wasn't the early Dungeon Master's Guide was actually just a collection of articles from like the early Dragon or Fanzine or something that they slapped together? Yeah, with some extra stuff added, but that's essentially all it was. Yeah, that's what I thought. So? Because it's no. I remember I had a copy ages ago. I got rid of it because I eventually realized, wow, this thing is useless. Well, it's useful, but the problem was you couldn't just buy the books and learn the game. No, you pretty much had to be taught the game by someone else, yeah. Yeah, or if you were lucky, you played one of the earlier editions of it, which the, the Red Book one was a little better organized. Yes. Oh, yeah. The Red Book one's awesome. Mm -hmm. That's totally playable. Yeah. It was when it became Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. Apparently, in this case, advanced means too advanced for you, buddy. <laughs> well, yeah. It was assumed that you'd already been playing for years. Right. Because so, I remember that because I remember waiting for it to come out. Mm -hmm. That's any indication of how old I am. <laughs> so out of curiosity, who taught you how to play D&D originally? Was it like your friends, your cousins, or aunts and uncles? No, I actually learned how to play on my own. Oh, okay. Like I said, there wasn't when when it when I started, it wasn't a common hobby, and I got one of the books by accident. I used to pick up a lot out of the miniatures because I like doing model kits. And then right. one, of, one of the stores here that I got them at said, "You know, there's a game that goes with this." And I was like, "Really?" Oh, okay. And I had the uh, I had the old blue book one. Wasn't that like the expert set or something, or was that just another version of the very basic set? What they did is the original one was the white box, which is the little okay. half-sized white ones. And then right. there was the, the red book D&D that most people remember. Right. And there was one that came in between. Oh, okay. And that was kind of when I started playing. Oh, okay. Okay, that makes sense. Because the one you're thinking, the expert rules added to the red book. They were the second one. Right, and that was a blue book, if I remember right, wasn't it? Yep. Okay, so okay, so that's why I'm getting confused. So there was more than one blue book. One was a version of the basic rules, and the other was the expert rules. Yeah. Got it. And so when was the first time you someone walked up to you and said, you know, you're playing something that's the work of the devil? Oh, that kind of started around 1980. Okay. And that was just after the red book came out. Because mm -hmm. I think part of what it, what ended up happening to uh, to D and D mm -hmm. was they had just put out the comprehensible set of rules, the the original basic red book. At the time, the panic hit, and all of a sudden, everywhere you looked, it was evil and the work of the devil. And those two things combined made the popularity skyrocket. Well, yes. As soon as you tell teenagers something is the work of the devil, they all want it. Yeah, yeah. You, this is bad for you. I am so in. Exactly, exactly. And I can remember that because I remember, yeah, I remember going to, say, the Eaton Center in Toronto. And mm -hmm. they had, a like, it was like a kiosk counter in the middle of the store. And the people were, like, five deep trying to get to that counter to, like, buy stuff. 
Wow. And then all of a sudden the books were available in like every bookstore and that. And it was, yeah, it just took off as soon as everybody was told it was bad for you. Huh. Fancy that. Yeah, it's kind of how it usually works. <laughs> mm. So in a lot of ways, actually, Satanism was the best thing that ever happened to Dungeons and Dragons. Well, perceived Satanism anyway. <laughs> okay, you're right. Perceived Satanism. I don't think there was a reference to Satan, but there were references to like different demons and such in the Monster Manual, if I remember right. Yeah, and it was all like made up. They weren't actually referenced to anything that you'd find in any theological text. Right. That actually explains why the one D&D book, which one is it that has a, basically the picture of the devil on the front? Like he's holding up a little adventure or something, but it's basically a giant devil. That was the Dungeon Master's Guide. There we go. With the Afri They knew their audience and they were playing <laughs> it. They were playing it hard. Well, kind of. I don't think, again, I don't think it was intentional because I think the panic snuck up on the, the people at TSR. Right. Because um, there was, if you, at the time... There were a lot of people at TSR that would write editorials defending the game, saying that this is all hokum. And at the mm -hmm. same time, when Second Edition came out, they took all references to like demons and devils out of the book. Yeah, Second Edition had references to demons and devils removed, references to the Cthulhu mythos, direct ones anyway, and a whole lot of stuff referencing token stuff was removed as well. Yeah, they they did that around AD&D, because when they put AD&D stuff out, they were still using a lot of those references, and that was mm -hmm. copyright. So the original, right, yeah. like, the, the deities and demigods had a Cthulhu section, and it had an Elric section that they had to take out because they didn't actually have the rights to those. Yeah, that makes sense. Actually, there was just a biography of Gary Gygax that just came out not too long ago, like literally within the last couple months. I was reading an article about it, and in it, mm -hmm. they actually do mention that I believe he was a Jehovah's Witness. Okay. And a, at some points, a relatively devout one. Um, mm -hmm. Apparently, he did kind of you know fade in and out of how devout he was. But it's one of those things that when people talk about this period, they rarely discuss is no the guy who is like behind these games and everything was actually a very religious dude yeah a lot of them were uh so, tracy hickman was uh religious as well yes yes he was he wrote articles looking at D D from a religious perspective during that time too yeah yeah and that was the one thing that really bothered me is because i was a kid i was about nine or ten when this all mm -hmm. started and mm -hmm. i remember it starting with the D D thing because that's what personally affected me. Um, it blew my mind because I had friends that were not allowed to play because the guy on TV said it's bad. And if you grew up in like the 70s, there were all kinds of PSAs about during like Saturday morning cartoons about question what you see on TV. Don't believe what you see on TV. Right. And then all of a sudden as a kid, I'm looking at all the adults around me who are like, no, the TV said. That's why they needed those PSAs. And it bothered me because all you had. Yeah. They need to put those on for the adults. Yeah, that, the problem is they were in the wrong spot. Those <laughs> PSAs should have been on primetime television, not Saturday morning television. At the time, they should have. Yeah, definitely. And then, Oh, I think they should be on there now, but anyway. Now? Yeah. <laughs> Don't believe what you read on the internet. Oh, geez, yeah, that's going to happen. <laughs> it should. Sorry, I keep interrupting. I apologize. Continue. But you mean Obama's not a lizard person? Oh, that's okay, you... Um, but the, 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 the thing that bothered me most about that was I'm looking at the adults around me mm -hmm. and all they had to do to disprove all of this was open a book, 
watch a game, do a little reading. Like, there's nothing to any of the, and none of them would. Because that would require effort. Well, yeah, and like I say, I learned that the adults didn't care for this because it was, like, their money and it took time away from studying and homework. So they were looking for an excuse not to condone it. But yeah, and like I say, that it was a defining moment for me because that was where my great distrust of authority came from. Because like I say, I saw the authorities on TV who were full of hokum. Mm -hmm. And I saw like the parental authorities around me who were idiots. Mm -hmm. And and I realized that, no, stupid's kind of a universal thing. Yeah, because I locked out on that because uh, my grandfather was like super, Mm -hmm. super religious. And he was concerned. And he did the one thing nobody else did. He actually played a game mm-hmm. and decided for himself that there was nothing to it. And it blew my mind that nobody else did that, that that's all it would take. Ten minutes and you could have disproven this whole thing, but nobody did that. Mm-hmm. Well, your grandfather, from the sounds of it, was a pretty awesome guy. I wish I'd met him. He was, and you didn't even touch the fact that he was a mad scientist. So... <laughs> Being a mad scientist is okay. Then there's we're supposed to socially accept everyone, Don. <laughs> Especially the crazy geniuses trying to destroy the world. The term it should probably be something like advanced scientific theorists now. No <laughs> no longer mad scientists. Fully political well, correctness, Batman. Um actually, yeah, we should come up with a PC term for mad scientist. <laughs> Differently oh, science. <laughs> differently scienced. Yeah, there we go. That could work. A An out-of-the-box scientific researcher. There we go. <laughs> there we go, yeah. Non-standard, out-of-the-box scientific researcher. Unconventional. Uh, unconventional researcher. There we go. <laughs> I don't know. What do they call that ham guy? The uh, the creationist museum guy. Um, Ken Ham. I don't know what yeah. they call him. Yeah, we could use that. That would be the guy who debated Bill Nye a while back. Yeah. And sat there spouting the usual while Bill Nye basically, you know, replied with facts. Yeah. Which didn't do any good. No, and again, it ties in with the conversation at hand because that's what ended up happening during the satanic panic. That's true. Well, when you have a panic going on, facts really do not matter because that's not what it's about. It's kind of the way the human brain works. I forget the technical term, but it's the idea that we don't believe in fact. Mm-hmm. We'll only accept fact from someone we recognize as an authority. Right. And how they get that recognition doesn't have to do with ability. It's more likability or agreeability. That would explain why people will accept supermodels and celebrities' words over you know, scientific researchers and scholars. Readily, very readily, in fact. Yeah, and that's why it's, it's if, if you have any kind of organization, even if you're trying to do something that's dem- demonstrably positive, you always go for the celebrity endorsement because that's what's going to carry you over. People believe celebrities. There's that root idea that they're obviously more and important that's where you than get us. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and that's, that's basically what it is. They're more important than us, and therefore we should listen to them. Yep. <laughs> Actually, I had a professor back at uh, one of the universities I attended that had a theory. And his pet theory was that the reason we keep giving celebrities honorary degrees 
is because we're desperately trying to justify the fact that people have so much faith and um, belief in those celebrities. <laughs> okay, I can see that. <laughs> it's a weird backwards way of saying, well, everyone believes this person, so we'll just give them an actual academic degree as though they really actually earned it. Well, and it can work the other way, too, that, you know, if this person has this degree, then that means that degree counts for something. Ah, good point. So in a way, it's, yeah, it's it's them trying to increase the legitimacy of that degree. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. In a sad way. Very sad. Yeah. Very, very sad. <laughs> but that's the same kind of thing, too. If you go back to the early 80s, to make it relevant to today, because I think we're almost the 80s again. Again. Yeah, yeah. It's, this is the be the third go around for me but, but yeah it sounds about right but what you saw was this idea that essentially the social justice crusader types gained mm -hmm. actual authority right and that was why you had this era of just follow the dogma and nobody questioned right i thought you were going to say just follow the dogma and nobody will get hurt so you said that um going back so you came into gaming just about the right time to catch a lot of this um, satanic panic and its effects on your gaming life. So how did it affect your gaming life then? Uh, the big thing that I remember, like I say, I was cool because my, my folks actually played right. and read the books and realized the guys on TV were wrong. Mm -hmm. But I had a lot of friends that weren't allowed to play. Right. And, and like I say, it blew my mind because all my life I'd been taught you know, don't believe the guy on TV, and then everybody was believing the guy on TV. Right. Well, he sounds very he sounds very respectable. No, they were just loud. It was Donahue. He had glasses. Everyone believes a guy with glasses. Well, and Geraldo, he had a mustache. Oh, yeah, there we go. He's got that amazing mustache. <laughs> so, but then again, it, it was also the idea of uh, people adhering to their dogma, because um, mm -hmm. I was thinking of my buddy uh, Bill. Mm -hmm. His mother was like, super religious and she absolutely forbade him from from playing dungeons and dragons at all right so we played warhammer mm -hmm. and i remember her coming downstairs and flipping through the realms of chaos book i think we should pause and explain to our audience exactly what warhammer role-playing is like don <laughs> well i remember the one ad with added death well, that's one way to describe it. Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, for those who are not familiar, is basically a darker version of Dungeons & Dragons. It was basically the dark, gritty version of D&D. That's the best way of putting it. The dark, gritty British version, to be more yeah, precise. That's important. <laughs> exactly. So it's really dark and gritty. And then the funny part of that was that the uh, Realms of Chaos books, especially the first one, mm -hmm. was there, are you sure that's PG-13 rated book of evil demonic monsters and such right and like i say i remember bill's mom flipping through it and she got this look in her eye and she's like is this dungeons and dragons and we're like no it's warhammer and her demeanor totally changed oh that's okay then <laughs> and that and, and that blew my mind right because i could totally see somebody picking up the original realms of chaos book and thinking that this is some evil satanic tome yeah, it's funny. The book that they actually could have used to charge D&D players as Satanists, no one actually bothered to look at. No, well, it, it came later. It was a few years after the height of the panic. Right. And like I say, the dogma had been entrenched by then. It was Dungeons and & Dragons mm -hmm. and anything else 
was perfectly fine because it wasn't Dungeons and Dragons. Now, let's rewind a tiny bit here. If I remember right, you once told me that you used to actually play at school. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, we did. And I remember back in the day, again, this was before I was actively role-playing, but I do remember back in the day, some schools banned D&D. Was yours one of them? Uh, my grade school didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I got to high school, we were a bunch of people were going to start a club. Mm-hmm. And the school, because again, I went to a Catholic uh, high school as well. My condolences. Yeah. They they forbade playing like D&D and they wouldn't allow the club. So we used to play at lunch. Right. And the idea was, again, that D&D, it was like an evil influence that was overly violent. So we used to play Car Wars and Warhammer and Judge Dredd mm-hmm. at lunch. Uh-huh. So per- perfectly acceptable, again, because there's like no violence in the Judge Dredd game. Oh, not at all. Judge Dredd, by the way, if you're not familiar, folks, is a far future authoritarian cop who basically, well, he does bring them back alive usually, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. Um, the the whole barely. Yeah. Well, the whole point of the the dread stories, especially back then, mm-hmm. was that you had this city of five billion people, ninety eight percent unemployment, nothing to do. Weird fads would catch on. They mm-hmm. they go to extreme levels. Thousands of people would die, and then dread would come in and clean it up. Right. And you played a Judge Dread role playing game. Yeah. Oh, we played the hell out of that game. I thought the Judge Dredd game didn't come until years later. Was there more than one version of it? Uh, the Games Workshop one was mid-80s. Okay. Like 86, 87. Mm-hmm. By that time, you started having dissension <clears throat> against all the, mm-hmm. uh, the, the the moral majority types from the early 80s. And I think part of that, too, is that was also the time where we were finding out that all of these like televangelists and evangelical preachers were hoarding money and diddling the secretaries and that. So they were all falling from grace. Right. And I think that took some shine off of the, uh, off of the whole movement. Right. And that took a lot of pressure off the whole gamer community, I imagine. Yeah. Well, that, and then by that point you had like the third generation gaming Mm -hmm. and you had a lot of different games. Right. Like at the beginning of the eighties, you were still playing Dungeons and Dragons Something just like Dungeons and Dragons, or something that was Dungeons and Dragons with a different name. Um, I beg to differ. Villains of Vigilantes was around at that point, and so was the early version of Champions oh. and Traveler. Oh, there were Traveler was about the only one that got any real press, though. That's true. Because remember that. Fortunately, well, yeah, that was the era too. That if your game had a print run of two or three thousand copies, it was a hit. Right. The only games that had a lot of exposure was D&D, and then people mm-hmm. trying to be like them. Right. People who wanted to be D&D, because that's where the money was. Yeah. And then by, say, like, 86, when you had your third generation games, you had games like, uh, they did Robotech and Ghostbusters, which tied into to other stories. Right, yeah, we were getting tie-in games at that point. You had tons of other genres that were being done, so it didn't look as homogenous to someone from the outside. Mm-hmm. Like, people would, would say, are you playing Dungeons and & Dragons? And see a spaceship on the box and go, oh, no, it couldn't be. And then, and I think, again, that kind of weakened the stranglehold because, like I said, the dogma was against D&D specifically. Right. That's the funny part is that they didn't interpret it as being against any other game, just D&D. Yeah, well, because everybody thought that was the only one and that it was sort of its own thing. 
Well, as I covered earlier, really, there was no actual substance to the satanic panic in regards to role-playing games or in regards to, oh, reality. Yeah. So, in the end, I guess it was nothing, but it was a major factor for some people in um, deciding whether they played D&D or not. For some young people, I definitely think it made them want to play D&D. Yeah. <laughs> but the truth is, I think it actually hurt the game in some ways, too. Okay. How you figure? Um well, as I said, in the case of a number of people, it prevented school clubs from forming. Right. Like, you couldn't have a school D&D club like you'd have a school chess club, especially at Catholic schools or many schools, especially in the American uh, South, you know, Midwest, etc., where they took that whole D&D equal Satanism thing seriously. Right. I think it did hurt the spread of D&D as a pastime and role-playing games in general. I mean it kind of got tamped down because of that whole moral majority thing. Although I got to say, I don't think it hurt gaming at all. I think it okay. overall for gaming, it was good, but mm -hmm. I think there was some harm in that it created a disconnect between authority and the kids. Because I know, like I say for myself, that was where a lot of my distrust of authority came from, from watching all the adults being idiots. Right. And then the, interesting. And then schools banning it and that, it distances those participants from from school. It shows that we don't like your kind around here. So That's true. So I think it might have hurt the community more than it hurt gaming. Interesting. So it caused kids almost to develop more of a rebellious attitude towards principals, teachers, and other authority figures. I don't know if I'd say rebellious. Gamers of the time weren't the most active people, but it, cer this is true. it certainly swayed their interests away. I'm sure there were probably lots of you know devout Christians at the time who still played D&D &D and enjoyed the heck out of it. Yeah. Even probably some older players as well. But And all you had to do was crack a book to realize all this stuff everybody was saying wasn't true. Okay. I could see that. So I guess, in the end, what's the moral that we should take from this? What do you think? Uh, keep a close eye on them social justice crusader types and don't believe anything you see on TV. Or the internet. I want to emphasize that. Or the internet. No, everything on the internet is true. No, Don. Everything on our podcast is true. Ah, the rest of the internet is junk and should not be believed. That's right. Just trust us. We know what we're talking about. Exactly. <laughs> Obey the DNA. Remember that. <laughs> Okay, so on that note, I think we should bring this show to a close. So thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you found this show um, informative. And if you see any Satanists in your area, and especially if you find them playing Dungeons & Dragons, do not hesitate to report them to your local authorities or to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, and welcome to the extra part of the show for today. After we talked about D&D and Satanism and the 80s Satanic Panic, it occurred to us that the roots of the Satanic Panic in popular culture went back more than a bit further. And in fact, you could actually say that by the time the Satanic Panic that we talked about came around, the public was definitely primed for it, by perhaps more than a decade of movies and television and such. So we thought we'd do, include this extra bit of the show. So we talk a little bit about the roots and where that came from. Don talked last time about the sociological roots of where the satanic panic came from. But let's talk about the cultural media roots of where it came from. Besides, of course, Oprah, Phil Donahue, and the other talk shows of the time, they fanned the flames, 
But where did society get this idea that there were Satanists around every corner? All right, so let's talk about it. Now, as far as my research showed, the first of the real Satanic movies was 1968's Rosemary's Baby, which was, I believe, part of the New Hollywood movement that was going on at the time. And if you're not familiar with it, is the story of a young woman and her husband who move into a brownstone building in New York. And she starts having these bad nightmares about being molested by a demon or some kind of monster. And slowly comes to discover that the rest of her building, spoilers, is inhabited by a satanic cult that are using her as the mother for the new Antichrist. Or something to that effect. And it truly shocked audiences when it came out. And it became quite a major success because the baby boomers of that time were looking for something that was a little different and boy was rosemary's baby different do you think that was the beginning of it don ah uh, well i think you're hitting at something important okay and it, it, it's the idea that entertainment in general a lot of people like to 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 blame it for stuff we just spent a fair amount of time talking about mm -hmm. that but it's a reciprocal effect okay Things are going to take off if they key in with something that's uh, currently swishing through the public consciousness. Because you mentioned Rosemary's Baby is probably the first of the actual, like, satanic films that got a lot of attention. There were ones before. Okay. Uh, uh, like, the 50s had a few. And I think, again, it was because the 50s was a horror boom because you had the... Uh, the advent of the B-movie, and horror is really good for a B-movie because it lets me use maximum titillation with minimum cost and effect. Absolutely. But there's one like, uh, I remember it was, uh, oh, what was it? It was like uh, The Devil's Hand. I've heard of that. I've never seen it, but I've heard of it. Yeah, which stars uh, Commissioner Gordon from the old uh, Batman TV show as like the leader of a satanic cult. That would be awesome. It, it 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 is and it isn't but it is and oh man i'm glad they're bringing back mystery science theater because there's so much material out there hint hint but, yep definitely i look forward to it <laughs> but you had a lot of stuff in the 50s that they would sort of just like use the devil like a rubber monster to wave in your face Ooh, they're satanists but they never really got into it they were just generic cult guys that in this one they're satanists when you got to things like uh what was it, Feast of Blood? Mm -hmm. They're like cultists of Ishtar or whatever. And they just throw that label in. It didn't really connect with the public Well, until like... Sorry hmm? if I can interrupt. The whole idea of cults had definitely been around for a while. I mean, hell, Lovecraft was writing about them back in like the 30s or the 40s was it he started? Uh, 20s and 30s. 20s and 30s. Okay, there we go. So Lovecraft was obviously not coming up with that out of thin air might have been he's lovecraft but i'd imagine the idea of like satanic cults running around worshiping like you know godzilla in an octopus hat definitely had been there before i mean or at least the idea of you know weird cults running around because if i remember right there were a lot of weird religions back in like the 20s uh there kind of was because the 20s was again it was like the 60s where it was an up period and everybody's looking for something new right so a lot of the cults, they weren't exactly what we'd think of as a cult. They would be like, um, the best example, if you want, look up in Britain, they had what were called the Bright Young Things. Okay, never heard of those. Yep, and, and this is what a lot of them were. It was just like like people in their 20s and that, that liked to go out, get drunk, have orgies, cause trouble. Okay, well, yeah. 
It's what nowadays the media would label teenagers. <gasps> so, yeah. If you've ever seen a uh, CBC special, we all know teenagers, all they do is drink and have sex and get pregnant. Um, <laughs> no comment. And it, <laughs> and it was and it was that idea. So you had this sort of idea of a cult. If you go back to like one of the things Lovecraft did that, again, was a dominant attitude at the time was the cultists weren't portrayed as like some kind of weird religion. They were sinister foreigners who did foreigner things and worshipping alien gods was just part of that because we all know that's what them weird foreign people did anyway. Oh, that makes sense. Yes. Okay. So they weren't Christian or devil cult, so to speak. Although, obviously, that kind of idea did exist. I mean, even the Old West was filled with lots of small Christian splinter sect groups, for example, that were doing all sorts oh, yeah. of weird stuff. Oh, yeah. Like, like Mo Sislak says, I was born a snake handler and I'll die a snake handler. Okay, then. <laughs> but it's it's that idea. And this is, this is um, the interesting part because it's always been there. Mm -hmm. Everything has always been there. But it's what does the general public key in on? What is it they take away from right. it? And that was why, like I said, you had satanic cults in films for a long, long, long time. But nobody cared until Rosemary's Baby. Well, and it, Rosemary's Baby was really cute. <laughs> he had his father's eyes. Oh! Um, <laughs> nice. Third quote, ten points. Woo. But anyway. You win, sir, you win. <laughs> anyway, but it was, at that time, that was what uh, people got out of it. Because, again, I think um, if you were young, mm -hmm. you were looking for something new. And if you were old and or establishment, all of these people looking for new things must be up to something. And it's bad and it challenges the way we've always done things and how could they do that. And I think that's why that idea kicked in because it's it satisfied both sides of the argument. Mm -hmm. Because it showed, um, like Rosemary's Baby, if you go a few years later, he had like The Exorcist, The Omen. Oh yeah, that was the beginning of a whole run of those kinds of movies. Hammer was just yeah. putting them out. Even technically The Wicker Man is one of them. Yep. And and again, what, what um why, why I say they satisfied both sides, and I think is why they took off for a while, is if you're anti-establishment... Mm -hmm. Uh, religion is one of the biggest symbols, and, and for, for the West, that would be some form of Christianity. Right. And it was this idea that all of these movies portray Christianity and the idea of, of, of God in that context as vulnerable. Mm -hmm. In Rosemary's Baby, the Antichrist is born. In The Omen, the Antichrist is born. Mm -hmm. In The Exorcist, the, the, it's not actually the devil, it's an ancient Babylonian deity, but nobody generally makes that difference is only beaten at the cost of the life of of uh like two of god's servants right. kind of thing so on the anti side that that's pleasing because it shows that you know the system can be beaten mm -hmm. if you're on the pro side it's absolutely terrifying and supports why you hate everything that all of these uppity people are starting to get into and how society's changing. And back in our day, you didn't have Satan taking over little girls. We never did that. It's the kids today. Mm -hmm. So it was it was creepy and justified all of the natural old people repugnance for whatever the kids are into these days. Right. Well, yeah, they were just coming out of Woodstock and all the, the hippie movement and the whole, you know, 
free love and drugs and all that movement. Yep. And it just totally went in with the stereotypes that old people had of young people during that time. Yep. And and in the 60s, you had, um, again, with the experimenting, you had whole new types of spiritualism that people looked into. Mm-hmm. And that was something that I think for establishment people at the time was particularly shocking. Or threatening. Uh, and both, because cause the kids are usually, they're lazy, they don't want to work, they don't follow our values, but there was still that unbreachable core, and that was why when you had all these like new changes in society, the religious angle was, was, was a viable one, it's when it stuck in people's minds, because that was one of these cores that nobody had ever tampered with. Right, it was one of the bedrocks of society, as they say. Yeah. Okay, and now it's under threat, it's under attack, and the young people are really finding that, you know, fascinating and edgy. I think some of this also comes from the shift that was happening in Hollywood at the time. The old guard mm-hmm. at Hollywood had retired, this is like the mid to late 60s, and the new guard, the new generation of film directors were coming in. Now you have to understand that up until then, Hollywood had primarily been making what we would call G or even PG rated movies at that point. In fact, PG was pushing things. Because most of what Hollywood had done, they'd been doing it under the Hayes Code, even though the code itself had been abolished. And also Hollywood was really playing it safe. They wanted the widest possible audience, which meant good middle class values. So no graphic sex, no swearing. Heck, I don't think really they had much sex at all in those times. But then what happened is, is there was a shift in Hollywood where the new generation of directors, um, Scorsese, Coppola, names that people will be familiar with, started making a new type of movie because they realized that the baby boom generation wanted something different. And so, therefore, they started making these new edgy movies, and the baby boom generation, who'd effectively been raised on, like, Disney-level movies, ate it up. Because this was more counterculture, right? These were edgy, artistic movies that the young people had never seen before. This was a radical experiment that was going on, that you could actually make movies that have actual thought and artistic value and tits and, um, (laughs) you know violence and the good guys don't always have to win remember up until then the good guys always had to win that's how we knew society was stable right and so we got uh the first movie of what's called the new hollywood era was bonnie and clyde with warren Beatty and faye dunaway and that had like a threesome in it it had um characters that didn't care about the law bonnie and clyde are obviously outlaws but they're the main characters And so they went around killing people, they went around doing socially amoral things, and yes, they do pay for it in the end, but the thing is, they're still the main characters, right? And they're shown to be enjoying it while they're doing it. They're having a grand old time. And then this would be followed by a whole lot of amoral movies, including obviously Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist, but also movies like The Godfather, Taxi Driver, etc., this was a time of counterculture movies. It was a time when Hollywood was experimenting and was willing to let people make movies that w- didn't have happy endings. I think that you can't go farther than having the devil win in a movie, especially during <laughs> that time, than to break the mold of the good guys don't always win. Right. So I think that there was some of that going on too. I think Hollywood was looking for something that they could use to appeal to that 
counterculture movement. And right. at the same time, of course, Christianity was wrestling with, um, you know, Eastern religions were now suddenly becoming the way to go. And the young people were finding them fascinating, which I think really threatened a lot of the Christian values of the United States at that time, especially middle America. Right. And so the end result was movies like Rosemary's Baby were really just capitalizing on that. Okay. I think they're right. I think that goes back a little farther, though. Okay. Because uh, Hollywood, in quotes, is never really experimental. And you're right that you had these new directors come in, but a lot of what they were doing was the stuff that the B-movies had been doing a decade earlier. Okay, I can see that. And again, I, it was because when you broke up the studio system and you had independent theaters, mm -hmm. that's where the B-movie came from, because if anybody listening isn't aware... When you had independent theaters, you needed something to put in them. Yes, and that occurred during the 1950s, because the, the studio system was broken up in 1948. Yep. And so the 1950s were an era of independent theaters, because that's what the big studios chose to sell off. They had to sell off either the production, distribution, or exhibition, and they chose the exhibition end. In other words, they chose to sell off the theaters. And so suddenly yeah. everyone and their brother needed content for those theaters. And so B-movies were made to cheaply fill in the space in between Hollywood productions going into the theaters. Oh, a lot of them, it wasn't even just uh, to fill up the space. A lot of the independent theaters couldn't afford big budget stuff. Mm, true. And that's why a lot of, like, say, the old 50s movies are so cheap because they were just cranking them out because it, it wasn't a matter of quality, just... Put something in there because people will show up Saturday afternoon just to watch a movie. Exactly. Well, again, pre-internet. At that point, television was still on the rise and really was something that generally only... Let's just say television was still spreading at that point. <laughs> yeah, there we go. That works. Um, so, yes. I mean, TV was not a major competitor. And also, TV was, of course, that tiny little screen in black and white. <laughs> so you could either go and watch something on a really big screen in black and white and make out with the girl next door, or you could sit in your living room with your parents and your father, you know, passing gas in the chair or something like that, and spend your Saturday afternoon watching that tiny little box as you squint at it and hope that the signal comes in and doesn't fade out again because a cloud passed between you and it. <laughs> yep. So, yeah, I remember those days. Well, I, don't, I, remember the, <laughs> I remember the 70s, 80s version of those days, trying to get UHF channels at a distance. But that's neither here nor there. Yeah, the 70s version, which was watching the 50s version on TV. <laughs> Leave it to Beaver. Yep, that's exactly what I was thinking. But... Okay, but back, but back on track. Yeah, so okay. Yep. So I see your point. Yeah, there were a lot of... Um, I don't want to call them underground, but we'll go with alternative or independent, independent movies being made. And many of them did go against Hollywood values. I can see your point. Mostly. Yeah, there, well, there's. Sorry, go. Oh, there's there's kind of two caveats to that. Though. Okay. Uh, one of them is that, um, like we said, there was so much of this stuff being made mm -hmm. that there was always competition. It was always, can you be, and the easiest way to do that and why horror was popular, because again, it was shock. Right. Because remember, it was like the early to mid-60s. You had the first of what we consider slasher films. Mm -hmm. And once that took off, you had a lot of these like no-budget films that they were all about like the gore and, and the horror factor and that. And a lot of them still had that traditional ending. Well, hold on a sec. Um, I thought the first slasher film was something like 
Uh, I thought it was either Halloween or Friday the 13th was the first slasher oh. film. No, the first slasher film was uh, Feast of Blood. Oh, okay. I've heard of that. Yeah, and, and it's 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 a slasher. That one, and then I think, uh, what was it, 2000 Maniacs mm-hmm. was around that time too, and that's considered an early one. But, but uh, Feast of Blood is definitely a slasher film. Well, actually, a lot of the effects look better than stuff from the 70s, but... <laughs> okay. I know, I believe yeah. you. And and that was where a lot of that started to come from, mm-hmm. because they needed something to draw the people in. There was so much competition. Right, so they had to go for more and more shocking material. Yeah, and then ho- the the Hollywood guys, the new Hollywood guys, basically took those ideas and said, what if we did this competently? Hmm, would that work? That was that some was, of what was going on, definitely, yeah. Yeah, and, and some of it was, oh man, Coke is awesome, but... Well, there's that too, I mean, even... Oh no, it was, it was LSD back then, yeah, sorry. Yeah, well, it was a little bit of everything. <laughs> yeah, it's true. A little bit of everything you often mix together. Well, no, hmm. Bonnie and Clyde, for example, was the result of a French film that's usually in English called Breathless, which right. from Jean-Luc Godard. Basically, they were just ripping off the French film industry who were producing avant-garde artsy films. And yeah. they thought those were awesome, so we got Bonnie and Clyde and a few other films that they were inspired by the French cinema of the time. That's a charitable way of putting it. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll go with that. Okay, so definitely they were trying something new, but they were trying something new for big Hollywood as opposed to trying something new, period. I mean, these ideas were already out there in independent film, but they were doing the mainstream. Yeah, it's it's that idea that, again, nothing just comes out of nowhere. There's always something that leads up to the next big thing. Right. And and that was what it was. Um, the other caveat that I wanted to say, mm-hmm. and it's kind of a bit of an aside, is that you had an underground kind of film industry back in like the 30s and the 40s and that. Um, because you used to have like these traveling theaters. Right. I forget the technical term. And they would show stuff based on shock value, but one of the things that they would do is is try to like claim there was education to it. Okay. I've never and, heard of this. Oh no, because it's it, it's it's something that disappeared mostly because none of this stuff would get shown. So they would say show films of like live birth. Oh, okay. And they would narrate it. And this is what happens when a woman gives birth to an infant. Observe and gruesome close up. How blah blah blah. And it was it was sort of they were showing them because there was there, there was definitely like a shock factor. Right. This was stuff. You didn't look at it. wasn't talked about in public, right? And you normally couldn't. You'd never see that kind of thing unless you, you know, were a father and you were there, or you were a doctor or a nurse. Yeah, and and by claiming that educational angle, mm-hmm. they could not get arrested for showing these films. And this is one of the reasons why, if you look at say uh, when you get to like the 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 forties into the fifties. You'll see, like, say, the juvenile delinquent films always take the angle, the shocking true story that the news is afraid to tell you. Find out what's really happening with America's youth, blah, blah, blah. And it's because it was a development from those kind of films. Ah, okay. Makes sense. And then then that underground film thing, as that got mainstream, they would do stuff that that pushed things. Because they had, um, I think they used to call them cuties. Mm -hmm. Would be movies that would have, like, topless women in them. okay and they might just be 
it's this like woman doing her housework, but she's topless and and okay. it was and it, it came out of this this kind of I, I call it underground because it was a lot like the underground comic scene mm. from from the sixties. And you had that, you had um those became a I think they called them roughies, mm-hmm. which were like your like S and M films and stuff that came around in like the forties and the fifties. And again, it was it was l- like this scene going on beneath the B movies. Mm-hmm. Like the B movies were sort of wanting to appropriate a lot of that shock and titillation, mm-hmm. and they did as much as they could. But if you wanted distribution in in the independent theaters, you couldn't go that far. Mm-hmm. These other this other layer of filmmaking was happening. These were like the theaters that you went in with like a a slope brim hat and a trench coat collar pulled up, right? Which I can remember places like that in Toronto up until like the seventies. I like didn't frequent to... such places, but okay, I'll, uh, I'll believe you. I used to go there a lot as a kid, just wander. The, they'd never let you in. Not that I'd be interested, because I was a fine, upstanding youth. Of course, you were. Yes, but but you'd go down some of the freakier parts of Young Street, and these theaters were still around. We we had some in Windsor too, but they were mostly violent action films. I see. Yeah, we had one alternative theater place here in London called the New Yorker Mm -hmm. and yeah I remember in my youth they would show like weird cult films mostly cult films artistic films is that the type of place you're talking about yep except here in Windsor they were more grungy and very cyberpunk (laughs) all right so obviously there was a big underground underground theater movement going on during the uh 30s 40s and 50s of stuff that you know proper people weren't supposed to be watching Yep, that's exactly and, right. Yeah, and then this eventually resulted in the horror movies, which appropriated some of that. And then eventually Hollywood took it to another level by actually letting it go mainstream, at least the whole Satanism cult horror thing, in the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s. Yeah. Okay, so okay, so there we are. So we're at the 70s, and Rosemary's Baby has come out, and okay, so how does this tie together then? Oh, well, because, again, um, it's that idea that you always have somewhere, and and in the internet age, this is painfully obvious, you just have to go to YouTube for half an hour and and you'll find it out, Mm -hmm. but there's always somebody doing something somewhere. Mm -hmm. Every, Every permutation of everything you can think, somewhere somebody's doing it. And I think get, that's called Rule 34, but anyway. <laughs> well, it's definitely, yeah, yeah, that ties in. <laughs> but it's that idea that when you get to the different levels of production, mm-hmm. like, say, for, for films during this era, mm-hmm. the big Hollywood guys would be doing, appropriating what they could from the independent films because they'd see, well, that works. Like, okay, people are open to, to, to this sort of thing. You can show, like, a guy getting his hand chopped off and nobody in the audience will die of a heart attack. Right. And then you'd get, like, the independent guys who'd be looking at all this, like, other stuff and going, wow, no, that's just too far. That's, no, no, no. Okay. Every now and then maybe borrowing a little from that. So there's this whole kind of ecology going on. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, where I think... um when you get to the uh, the, the the Satanist thing, mm-hmm. I don't think that necessarily started to gel until the seventies, but it has its counterculture roots in the sixties and maybe even a little earlier. Okay, that makes sense. I can see that, but 
as you said, it really gelled in the 70s. I mean, yeah. obviously, it was playing on some fear that society truly had during the 70s. Yeah. There was definitely something there that yeah. society was worried about, and that played on the fears. And that's where um, the question that I would ask myself mm -hmm. is, uh, like I say, we were talking before, that this is how in the States the religious right came to power, riding the wave of a lot of those fears. Yes, they did. And then you have to wonder, how how does the reciprocity of that work? Was it, um, say, the fears of the religious right that validated that kind of, of, of say, while well, we're talking film, that validated those films for the, the counterculture people, which led to them coming up? Or was it the counterculture people bringing those films up that validated the fears of the religious right? I would say it's the latter, probably. I think the films really validated the fears of the religious right. They gave them something to point at and show that, look, these films are coming out and they're corrupting our youth and our children. We have to do something about it. Yeah, I could see that. I think that they needed an enemy. They needed a devil. Right. To point at and say, look, get, we have to get together. This evil force is there and we've got to stop it. Right. And so, yeah, I think that's probably where a lot of it came from. I think they used it. I mean, of course, probably both are true. Both, that you, both of the things you said are probably true. But I think mostly it was them using anything they could, the religious right, I mean, using anything they could to generate an outside threat that, right. that required them to band together. And if you follow us, if you join us in our crusade, we can stave off evil and we can preserve American society. Because as we all know, American society was in an upheaval at that point. There we go. And so people were worried about how society was going to change. Right. And this was part of it. They thought, oh my God, we're all going to become godless, drug-smoking, orgy-having, devil-worshipping, whatevers. <laughs> and that's the fears that they were playing on. Both the religious right and the movies, obviously. Yeah. But of course, if you're going to have Satan ruling the earth, he has to have, you know, his son show up. So therefore we get the omen and everything else. Right. Well, well, again, because I think that when you personify it like that, it makes for an easier story. Well, yes. Nebulous, vague evil isn't really that interesting. No. I mean, no. that's like trying to personify a storm. I mean, you can do it if you're really skilled in film or writing. You can, in theory, do it, but there are limits. Right. This is why even villainous organizations tend to have agents that represent their quote-unquote face. Right. That's an old trick. Having a hero fight a faceless villainous organization doesn't work very well unless the story is about the hero's inner struggle or the inner struggle of the hero's group or something like that. Right. But anyway, we're getting off track. So, <laughs> okay, so thanks to this cultural shift that was happening in Hollywood and in society, it left the door open for the religious right to rise. And then in the early 80s, they needed a new boogeyman. So they pointed to satanic cults, which supposedly exist around every corner, which everyone knew were, existed because of Rosemary's Baby. Mm -hmm. And then eventually this led to them needing a new threat, and that became D&D, &D, almost completely by accident. Right. Okay, I think we've got it. Yep. <laughs> okay, so I think we'll end this show here, unless there's something else you wanted to say. 
Uh, no, I think that's pretty much it for, for this one. The, we, we hit on some stuff that I think will come up later on in different shows. I, I think so, too. But this is a good starting. We want to keep this focused. After all, we're just kind of filling out more details about what we already talked about earlier on. Oh, 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 there's one thing. Okay, go. Uh, there is a really good uh, documentary mm-hmm. on the, the whole like un- independent underground film scene. Really? Okay, what's it called? If you get a chance, it's uh, American Grindhouse. I think I've heard of it, but I've never seen it. Yeah, I, I do recommend that, because it, it covers a lot of this material, uh, like the, the old-timey, what-happened-to-the-film-industry kind of thing, pretty much. I will definitely include a link to it in the show notes, or at least the IMDb listing. Do you think it's on YouTube? Uh, it might be. Okay, well, you can go look. Anyway, if if I can, I'll include a link to it on YouTube. If not, the audience can go looking for it themselves. But American Grindhouse, I will definitely check that out. It sounds cool. It is. Okay, on that note, next we're going to talk about Star Wars and our memories of Star Wars. (laughs) And how Star Wars action figures traumatized both of us. (laughs) And how one of us traumatized a Star Wars action figure. (laughs) We're not going to talk about that, Don. Okay, maybe we will. All right, anyway... See you next time. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. If you want show notes or to tell us why we're wrong, head on over to ObeyTheDNA.com and join the discussion. If you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend. And remember, to master the nerdly arts takes time, perseverance, and a whole lot of nachos. Do not be discouraged, for you too can be a light in the darkness. See you next time.